Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Hey, everyone. We're recording this a day before Halloween. It will hopefully be posted on Halloween or before Halloween. Maybe you'll hear a little bit about it after. But there's a real monster this Halloween season, and he's in the White House. (laughs) Yeah, so we do have a very topical film, maybe uh, topical to the point of fault, I don't know, for this week's episode. Uh, But before we talk about that, I mean... We are recording this episode a few days before the U.S. presidential election. So, I mean, some rank punditry is pu- is probably called for. Uh, so uh, I got we'll- my election map worked out, and I think every state is going blue from <laughs> east to west, sea to shining sea. It's just going to be a big blue wave. And I'm hoping this prediction will go viral. I think we can make it happen. <laughs> Well, you you joke, but I have seen a couple versions of that from who's the guy that actually owned us all really hard uh, last time? Is it Bill Mitchell? Uh, guys right. like that. I don't. I haven't seen Bill Mitchell recently, but guys like that, the sort of like I don't know, mega sort of alt media types, like doing these maps that are just completely improbable, where like Trump flips New York red or something like that. Right, but then similarly, right, right. you have you know they're like you know w- once you uncuck the polls, like this is what you get or whatever. And then uh, you know similarly, the I think the Krasensteins themselves are banned from Twitter, but you know their spiritual equivalents. I've seen versions of it where mm-hmm. yeah, it's like. The projection you just gave, but unironically, like it's a Reagan style sweep, except, you know, Trump only wins Alaska or or like, you know, something like that. It could be a somewhat close election. You know, we all know what the polls suggest. There's going to be a kind of moderate to possibly considerable Democratic victory. I mean, certainly in the popular vote, possibly in the Electoral College, too. I've been looking into the ways that COVID has shaped the election. I think doing that has has kind of cured me of, of whatever residual feelings I might have had that the Democrats were gonna were gonna fuck this up. The pollster Harry Enton, you know, he's a mainstream pollster, but I think he made a pretty convincing case uh, on CNN recently. He's made the case that COVID essentially is the the main issue of the election. If you look at a Gallup polling since the spring, COVID has been the number one issue on everyone's mind. It is like by far and away the issue on top of mind for vote for American voters um, and has been for months and months. Biden massively leads Trump if you poll people on who's better positioned to kind of steward the country through the virus. Uh, I mean, he leads by double digits on that. And as Enton pointed out in his CNN discussion with Chris Cuomo, in every single election Gallup has polled since 1948, with one exception, the exception actually being 1948, the candidate who's led on the most important issue, or what is the most important issue according to Gallup, has won. So there is an entirely different election that can be imagined, one without a pandemic. Uh, if you go back to January and February, like the economy, at least by kind of conventional metrics, whatever we ultimately think of their value, you know, the economy was booming, the stock market was soaring. Trump actually had uniquely good approval ratings. I mean, the best approval ratings of any president in 20 years when it comes to the economy, which in many elections, particularly ones where there's an incumbent president, is often kind of the deciding factor. And I think in those cases, Biden's weaknesses as a candidate might have been a much bigger problem. But I I hardly think Biden is even really functionally Donald Trump's opponent. Uh, Biden is kind of he's the anti he's the consolidated anti-Trump vote. He's running as generic Democrat. He's run a remarkably absentee campaign, a campaign which I think in regular times would have had a lot of problems. But in the context of soaring unemployment and eviction crisis, you know, mass death and a clear mishandling of a national crisis, it's very difficult to imagine a scenario where there's a Republican victory uh, or at least any kind of legitimate Republican victory that doesn't involve, you know, 
some kind of inc- insane alchemy with the electoral college or you know some measure of cheating or theft so i don't know maybe we'll all get owned again on election night maybe the pollsters will have to eat their words a second time but i'm i think i'm leaning towards uh probably not you heard it here first the mike lanas podcast endorses joe biden <laughs> <laughs> My mind has inevitably turned post-election, you know, assuming that Biden wins, because I can already envision, you know, a lot of triumphalism on the part of people who, whose politics really haven't changed since 2016, you know, who they remain kind of stubbornly wedded, you know, Democratic strategists and media surrogates and, and the like, people who have stubbornly refused to let Trump's victory alter how they see the world at all or how they understand politics at all. They will see this as a vindication for the kind of Rahm Emanuel strategy of appealing to you know, rich suburban moderates and just triangulating on every single issue and wheeling out John Kasich at the DNC to tell everybody, don't worry, folks, no one no one pushes Joe to the left. Well, I think it's safe to say, you know, we, we hope Biden wins. Biden winning is clearly the more desirable outcome here. I expect that there's going to be not only the round of triumphalism I described, but probably another flurry of progressive and sort of small liberal speculation about like, well, Joe Biden has spent his career as, you know, his long political career on, you know, the right of the Democratic Party or as, you know, as a career moderate. But could he be the next FDR? Um, You know, there was a round of that this summer, which I, I wrote a lot about in Jacobin. It always seemed like, you know, people kind of trying to comfort themselves after the primary, you know, essentially defeated progressive politics, you know, not just those of the socialist left, but also, you know, just the small P progressive wing of the Democratic Party as well. You know, they didn't just sink Bernie, you know, Elizabeth Warren's campaign also went uh, nowhere and the most conservative candidate won. But I believe, you know, since Biden's primary victory that, you know, this is basically, you know, the way you should understand this election is it's an election between big C conservatism and small C conservatism of a kind. I mean, big C conservatism is the Republican Party, right? Institutionalized conservatism. Small C conservatism, I think, describes Joe Biden. I mean, he is kind of like a pro-gun control Tory, you know? He sees politics and, you know, the, I think, relatively small number of people who are very enthusiastic about Joe Biden's candidacy and the possibility of him becoming president— You know, they all share in the view that American politics, politics in general, are a kind of ecosystem, a kind of equilibrium. And the function of the president especially is to kind of maintain that equilibrium. The presidency has a kind of pastoral function. The president is a convener and a healer, and their kind of personal qualities and temperament in some way kind of reflect reflect and reflect upon the character of the nation as a whole, which is a very kind of, I don't know, classically conservative idea. Something else about Biden is that he is, you know, so much the candidate of older voters. In fact, it looks like he's going to win. Uh, he's going to win with older voters over Trump by possibly pretty considerable margins. So I think another way you can look at this election is it's two versions. It's a liberal and a conservative version of Make America Great Again. You have the, the mega Trumpian revanchist version of that. And then you have the kind of liberal nostalgic restorationist version. And while there are all kinds of people who are going to vote for the Democratic nominee who don't share in that kind of small C conservative idea, you know, that's nevertheless, uh, you know, it's those politics that are preeminent and I suspect uh, will be preeminent in a Biden administration if, if indeed Biden is sworn in in January. I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. I think he'll come back. 
exploring uncharted territory. And totally charted. And just talk. <laughs> sure, sure. Mm -hmm. The only reason she babysits is to have a Halloween. We don't talk a lot about horror movies on this podcast. We do every now and then. Uh, I've talked a lot about horror movies on my other podcast, but I don't think you and me, Luke, uh, well, actually, we did take a horror movie class together once, didn't we, like a decade ago. But I mean, aside from that, I don't think horror movies are something that we've talked about a lot. And I'm curious what your relationship with the genre is. Did you grow up, you know, watching slashers? Were you a big scream kid in the 90s? No, horror movies were not a big part of my my childhood or my adolescence. I mean, keeping in mind that I, I didn't really watch movies that didn't star like Adam Sandler or, or Jim Carrey until maybe age 15 or 16. When I got into movies in general, obviously there were some horror movies that I really liked. But actually that horror film class that we took, which I have some very funny memories from, I think that was the first time I'd ever encountered horror as something that you could kind of read around, that there were things that were intellectually and culturally interesting about it, that you could do kind of psychoanalytic and Marxist readings of it. Yeah, because horror is often received as like one of the most lowbrow genres, one of the most disreputable genres. What about you? Was horror a big part of your childhood? I think I liked the idea of horror movies, but I didn't have a very strong stomach for them. You know, I would consciously avoid the horror section at the video store. I just want to cut in to say, yes, that was another reason I wasn't into horror movies is that I was very... Very squeamish and risk averse as a mm -hmm. kid. So if I was faced with like even a moderately scary movie or watching Liar Liar for the 50th time, I would go with mm -hmm. Liar Liar every time. I have one memory of being maybe I must have been like six. Hopefully I wasn't too much older than that because it would only make what I'm about to say more embarrassing. But I remember watching a Scooby-Doo movie that my parents rented from the, from Blockbuster. The live action Scooby-Doo one? This wasn't the live action one. Uh, this was, you know, it was animated, but I guess it was like a newer one. So it wasn't really like canonical with the show. It was like a 90s Scooby-Doo right. movie. And the plot of this one was that it undid all of the kind of conventions of Scooby-Doo where... There's never a real monster. You know, it's just somebody who would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for those meddling kids. You know, it's always Mr. Withers from the Haunted Amusement Park, whatever. You know, there was a scene in this movie, which I found absolutely chilling, where they went to unmask, you know, the zombie or whatever. But then the mask didn't come off because it was a real zombie. Uh, wow. And it turned out that this was the time when Shaggy, Scooby and the gang actually stumbled upon the supernatural. And I remember not sleeping that night. It was I was terrified. <laughs> I'm shivering over here right now. <laughs> well, you know, as a kid, I really like, you know, because I was so squeamish, pretty much the only ones I could watch were like the Bella Lugosi, Boris <laughs> Karloff type ones, you know, the really old ones. So I developed a deep love for those as a kid. Um, but, you know, when I was a teenager, I had probably swallowed a certain amount of the received wisdom that most horror movies are, are bad. Like culturally, they're bad for you, like potato chips are bad. Uh, which is, I'm also embarrassed to say, because that's a really lame thing for a teenager to believe. But, you know, I, I hate I hate to bring up Siskel and Ebert again, because we do all the time. But there's this <laughs> amazing uh, Siskel and Ebert clip where they review one of the Friday the 13th movies. And this goes viral like every year. And Ebert's in it and he's saying, so Just think of the message this film offers to its teenage audience. The world is a totally evil place, this movie says. It'll kill you. It doesn't matter what your dreams and hopes and ambitions are. It doesn't matter if you have a new boyfriend or a new girlfriend or you've got plans for the future you can forget those plans because you're going to wind up dead there is literally nothing else in this movie think of the message that this movie gives to its teenage audience 
And, you know, I, I probably heard that as a teenager. I thought, oh, yeah, that is a very negative message, isn't it? <laughs> and I don't have that reaction anymore because, I mean, a lot of the critical backlash to horror movies seems to me premised on the idea, the unspoken idea, the tacit idea that certain ideas should be off limits or certain ideas are, are wrong or bad in some way. And horror seems to me like where, not to get too pretentious about it, but where society goes to work through those difficult feelings. It's almost comical the degree to which horror movies or horror literature, anything in horror, mirrors the zeitgeist. People would say in the 2000s when there was that wave of so-called torture porn movies, Hostel, Saw, stuff like that, that this was society working out Abu Ghraib or the Iraq War or all the all the debates going on with torture at the time. And, you know, at the time, I probably scoffed at that armchair uh, psychological reading of it. But nowadays, I actually think there's something to it because that wave of torture porn movies, I hate that term, but that wave of torture porn movies did only flourish in the mainstream in the mid 2000s. And then it was replaced by something else. Uh, horror movies are where where society goes to dream. Is that a quote from someone? God, I wish it was. I, I, it would be less embarrassing to say that if it was a quote <laughs> from someone. But have you noticed, for example, that it's been a long time since there's been a very successful Frankenstein movie? I think it's because the the issues that the Frankenstein franchise, so to speak, was dealing with are not really top of mind anymore. People, by and large, aren't really worried about science invading the territory of God, whereas Dracula and vampires seem pretty timeless because matters of sex are always timeless. You know, the Scream series, this kind of like postmodern slasher movie, I feel like that could have only really flourished in the 90s at the at that end of history moment. God, I feel so pretentious saying all this stuff, but I happen to believe it's true. <laughs> you know, it's not it's not coincidental that Last House on the Left was popular during the Vietnam War. Well, I think this is a useful jumping off point to talk about uh, our film this week, which is the 1978 film Halloween directed by the god John Carpenter, which is a film uh, I really like. Uh, I watched it for only the second time uh, in preparation for this episode. What's your relationship with this movie? Oh, I certainly like it. I've probably seen it four times over the years, maybe maybe five times. I think it's one of the best horror films, and that's my relationship with it. I have the same relationship with this movie that everybody has with pizza. I like it. We all agree it's good. <laughs> all right, episode over. Uh, next week, folks... Uh... <laughs> You know, but actually, I do want to add something to that, because I do think I have a relationship with the slasher genre itself. When I was a snobby teenager, I remember the Spike TV network. Do you remember Spike TV? It was that channel for guys. It was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they had uh, Star Trek The Next Generation and WWE. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was just it was just like TNT. It was whatever the channel was before that. All the same programming. But they called it Entertainment for Guys. <laughs> Anyway, every Friday the 13th or every Halloween, they would do a Friday the 13th marathon. And I used to dip into that because as a teenager, I think those movies, even though I, I was trained to believe they were bad, I still felt a draw to those movies because they seemed like evil and forbidden. They seem very pornographic, actually, the way that like th these movies compared to something like Halloween or Psycho, these movies are just killings. And, that, and that's what it's about. The, the plot is a clothesline for the killings. And look, you know me, I don't, I don't get too scared easily at movies, but the premise of 
the Friday the 13th movies in particular and slasher films in general, I do think is scary because it it is, as Ebert said, the message of them is it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your job is or if you've got a boyfriend or a girlfriend or whatever. Like there's no outrunning the Reaper. And that's a very scary idea. But so in Halloween, uh, it absolutely does matter who you are. And I think that's central to the movie. And it's one of the things that has the movie. I mean, as I understand it, it has a bit of a reputation as kind of a conservative film or as, you know, as a film which is culturally reactionary. You know, there are a few reasons for that. One is that, you know, one of the kind of principal devices is seeing things from the perspective of the killer, right? Right from the the famous opening, you know, long take where, you know, we don't know whose eyes we're seeing through, you know, who we soon find out is a six-year-old boy who has, you know, murdered his older sister moments after she's finished having sex with her boyfriend, which is, you know, something else that kind of ties together. That's, you know, a recurring theme in the in the murders in this film. There definitely is a reading of Halloween that because we're sort of, visually made to identify with Michael Myers, the slasher, you know, as he kills these young women. That we that we take pleasure in the murders and that he's our representative on screen somehow. Right. And that the punishment being meted out for sexual deviancy is something that we're supposed to kind of identify with. Right. Because this movie very much sent the template for a certain kind of slasher plot. Carol Clover, the great feminist film theorist, articulated this first in her book, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, where she identified the idea of the final girl. All the other girls get killed, and it's particularly girls. It's men, too, but it's particularly girls to whom the most punishment is meted out on after having sex. But the final girl is a sort of androgynous woman, the the only one who doesn't engage in sex. This actually sounds like so cliche to say now, uh, because it's, it's so well understood now. Well, in a movie like Halloween, honestly, even if people haven't seen it, you know, the sort of visual motifs and the narrative idioms of, of a film like this have just like percolated so deeply into popular culture that people kind of know them, even if they don't know their source. Um, but let's let's go through Halloween a little bit. Let's go through the plot, you know, after this initial murder, in case anyone hasn't seen it. I mean, basically, after he commits the murder, Michael Myers you know, is sent to some kind of care facility for 15 years where he's watched over by a doctor qua psychiatrist uh, who's kind of trying to get through to him uh, and who is also a character in the movie. The psychiatrist, whose name is Dr. Loomis, at one point explains in the movie that he tried to communicate with Michael Myers for several years and then realized that there was really nothing to communicate with or rather nothing that was worth communicating with. And he describes this in a very memorable scene where he says uh, there was no reason, no conscience, no understanding, even the most rudimentary sense of life or death, good or evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old child with this blind, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up for I realized what was living behind the boy's eyes and was purely and simply evil. So Michael Myers escapes, uh, you know, 15 years uh, after his initial incarceration, escapes from this facility. And Dr. Loomis recognizes right away that he's going to go back to uh, his hometown. And that's when we're introduced to Laurie, played by a young Jamie Lee Curtis, who is the only one of the young characters we're introduced to who is still alive at the end of the film. And we learn a few things about Laurie early on. We learn that while her friends are out doing stuff, she doesn't have anything to do. She never goes out. She's not cheerleading like her best friend Annie. 
She complains, guys think I'm too smart. Uh, She's too shy to ask anyone to go to the dance with her. Her friend Annie offers her some pot. You know, she's really unsure about it. They smoke it in the car when she pulls up, uh, when they pull up alongside Annie's dad, who's uh, the town sheriff. Uh, She gets incredibly self-conscious about it. And while her friends are all out having fun and seeking sexual gratification, she's the one who stays home and actually babysits for Annie, who's hooking up with her boyfriend. The young men and women in kind of her social orbit are all kind of the inverse of this. They're sexually active. They drink alcohol. They smoke pot. And I guess just to finish off the plot here, you know, much of the film involves Michael Myers stalking them through this neighborhood, picking them off one by one. Just to reiterate the point, he usually kills either right before or right after people have had sex. Or at one point, he kills one of the boyfriends when he goes downstairs to, uh, you know, grab a post-coital beer from the fridge. The chain of events that culminate in Annie's murder set off when she's working in the kitchen uh, and she spills something on herself or something and she takes her clothes off because they're dirty. That's an important context for all of the murders in the film and for the fact that Laurie, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, is the only character left standing at the end. And so much of how you interpret this film depends on what you make of that and whether you think that it is ultimately trying to draw a progressive or a reactionary conclusion. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Well, I always think of John Carpenter as a progressive filmmaker. He's certainly progressive as a public figure, and he's made films like They Live that are unambiguously progressive. When I hear you say progressive or a reactionary horror film, I of course inevitably think of our guy Robin Wood, the great Marxist Canadian film critic who coined the terminology of the progressive and the reactionary horror film. And we've talked about him before, but just to just to recap, in his writings, he would say that from his perspective, a movie like Dawn of the Dead is a progressive horror film because the monster, which it represents everything that society holds back, the fact that it wins at the end, and the fact that society society is destroyed, that makes it progressive. Whereas a movie like the original War of the Worlds from the 1950s, that's a movie where science and religion come together to beat back the monster. So that's a reactionary film. Frankenstein from 1931 is a reactionary film because Dr. Frankenstein's homosexual tendencies, I mean, his interest in creating monsters is eventually beaten back and uh, he's able to be married. So if we're following that kind of rubric, I guess Michael Myers isn't necessarily dead at the end of this movie i guess i guess he's still ambiguously alive at the end i think perhaps it's reactionary in the sense that it has a certain amount of sadistic pleasure in watching like sexually active young people die i want to talk a bit about michael myers's survival because i think the way the film portrays him is absolutely incredible and it's the only reason the film which was made on a a relatively low budget and certainly isn't, I mean, apart from that opening scene, certainly isn't kind of stylistically flashy. Although certainly stylistically compelling, what with his moving camera and his creative use of lighting. Absolutely. It does an incredible amount with very little. But I I was going to say that the thing that makes Michael Myers work as a character is the fact that he's kind of not really a character. You know, he is more a device. And though the film, I mean, officially anyway, there's nothing supernatural in this movie. It's about a mentally ill person escaping from from where they've been cooped up, killing for reasons that are unclear and uh, trying to kill again. 
But there is something very spectral and supernatural about the way Carpenter portrays Myers because he just kind of, you know, he just kind of appears uh, and then disappears. You know, at the for the first kind of third of the film, or even more than that, really, Laurie isn't even aware of him. Uh, she's just looking out the window during English class, and there's a guy standing behind a car wearing a hockey mask, looking sinister. But then when she looks again, uh, he's not there. Uh, when she and Annie are walking down the street, she thinks he see, she sees him standing next to a hedge and that he's disappeared behind the hedge. But then when Annie goes there, you know, there's there's no one there, nor any trace uh, indicating that anyone was there. Uh, similarly, at the end of the film, when he's been shot by Dr. Loomis and falls out the window, when they look back at the ground where he should be lying, he's just vanished. So he's more of a sort of omnipresent threat who really could be anywhere. And I think that's very important. I think it's also very important that the actual murders don't really begin until... The film doesn't really get going as a slasher film until, I want to say, the last third of the movie. Maybe that's a little bit conservative, but the pacing of the movie is incredible. So much of it isn't really a horror film at all. It's just kind of building up the suspense to the you know inevitable killings. Well, can I ask you, do you find the film reactionary? Because Michael Myers is almost this kind of like existential force. He's totally dehumanized and stripped of any personality or really any motivation in a way that virtually nobody in the world actually is. You know, there are very, very, very few people like this in reality. I mean, it sounds joyless to try to fit this film into like a progressive and reactionary uh, rubric, but you know, that's what we're here for. So I guess I'm, I'll, I'll ask you, I'll ask you, do you think depicting a man as a force like that is reactionary if we if we don't arbitrarily taxonomize things why are people even listening and put them exactly. on a scale of good to bad uh the official michael and us film spectrum uh fear or love as the teacher in donnie darko <laughs> schematizes things uh well so i don't really have a good answer to that question because i'm not sure i know enough about the horror genre to speculate on kind of i don't know to put it a bit pretentiously the editorial agency of the film like is this film trying to make any kind of prescriptive point or is it you know i mean does it really even have us or is there even a kind of cultural politics to the film i'm not sure uh it has a conscious project in that way but i do think it has a project i'm interested in this because there has been a recent wave of horror movies movies like us and get out the babadook uh, as well as tv shows like the haunting of hill house and the haunting of bly house which have been referred to in the industry press as elevated horror quote unquote what does that mean this is the first time i've heard that expression it sounds a bit like prestige tv it's exactly that and it's a term that's met with an enormous amount of backlash from horror fans who quite rightly say that there's nothing elevated about this stuff except the fact that it's seeking a more well healed audience than certain other horror movies. But in recent years with these movies and TV shows, the idea that horror is a genre where uh, you can work out big themes and that uh, the monsters can be metaphorical and those zombies aren't just zombies, they're also us. This is an idea that, you know, is, is as old as time, but it seems to have really captured the mainstream's attention now. And so there are all these more prestige horror films that very kind of bluntly and didactically deal with issues of race and trauma and sexual assault and other 
kind of trendy topics now. I don't mean to trash all of the elevated horror movies, quote unquote. I think some of them are quite good. But I think horror is interesting primarily as a reflection of that collective unconscious. And I think the fact that it is a reflection of the collective unconscious is what has made it such a threatening genre and such a disreputable genre, a genre that, you know, Siskel and Ebert might crusade against in the 80s, because there's something uncontrollable about it. It's where people go to work through these difficult and unsavory ideas and impulses, and where all sorts of people, you know, not just the intelligentsia, not just the upper classes, we all go there and dream together, and we have to be libertarians about it, right? Like, just because something is ugly uh, in the context of a horror movie doesn't mean it's not interesting and that we don't want to work through it. Yeah, so something that recurs in Carpenter that I think is really important to this film is the idea of the monster or the antagonist or the threat, which is simultaneously very real, but kind of hard to track down non-corporeal, atmospheric, or at least, you know, bereft of kind of human qualities. A few weeks ago, we talked about Dark Star, which was uh, his first film. And that one, I suppose, you know, the enemies are technology and bureaucracy, but particularly a computer that, like the computer in 2001 A Space Odyssey, like HAL, is just kind of cold and calculating and has the features of a human, like speaks in a human voice and has the capacity for reason, but not anything else, and will kill without asking any questions. You know, The Fog uh, is another film that you could say that about. The Thing, which is definitely the scariest, I mean, the scariest Carpenter film, if not, you know, one of the scariest films that I've ever seen. Uh, and which actually gets a nice shout out in its original Howard Hawks version, which uh, some of the characters in the movie are watching at one point. So this idea of kind of the external threat that is more of a spectral presence than something that you can, you know, and obviously this applies to Michael Myers. Uh, that's something that recurs throughout Carpenter. And I think it really is the key to understanding Halloween. And I guess it's a good moment to talk about what my reading of the movie is. I don't have this fully fleshed out. So I suspect as some of you are listening, better ways of expressing the same ideas will occur to you and uh, will feel free to offer any friendly amendments. I think on the left, we're given a lot of cause to talk about decline uh, because the left, broadly speaking, kind of peaked in about 1968. That was kind of the zenith of, you know, the post-war experiment with egalitarian democracy. In the United States, that year is particularly significant as well, for obvious reasons. And there are many themes of decline that people on the left, uh, and even liberals, I think, to some extent, generally engage in. You know, there's the decline of manufacturing, which has been a big theme of, or at least a kind of sub-theme of discourse around Trump's election. It's even something that's come up in the uh, election. Who can forget Joe Biden's like bizarre Tim and Eric sketch where he's talking about how we're going to start making cars in America again. <laughs> whatever. Oh, but could my dad ever drive a car? Oof. You know, we talk about the decline of the organized left, of left institutions, etc. Uh, we also talk about the retreat of liberals uh, in the wake of a growing and kind of resurgent and increasingly confident right. And I think all these things are discussed for good reason. But I think uh, we often forget that the right has its own telling of events, uh, both, you know, the post-war era and particularly the period between about 1968 and kind of the 1980s. So broadly speaking, between the peak of the quote unquote 60s as a cultural moment, as a cultural idea and, you know, the Reagan revolution and the kind of subsequent three decade or so like march to the right that happened in its wake. And that story that conservatives tell, and again, this applies not just to kind of the conservative intelligentsia, the conservative movement, it also applies to felt experiences, the felt needs of, you know, particular American voters who were added to the Republican coalition 
and politicized in particular ways around the conservative vision of post-1968 America, around the conservative vision of, you know, what was ailing the country in the late 60s and the 70s and what needed to be fixed. And that story, you know, broadly speaking, is that, you know, there was the main theme of American life, you know, and this is a story that conservatism reinvents, you know, as Corey Robin and others have explained, you know, conservatism reinvents a version of this story once every generation. But there was a particularly potent version of it uh, after the 1960s and in the 1960s, which said, Look, things were basically stable. Things were basically fine. America was a free and democratic country that, you know, was saving the world from communism, beacon star of the world, etc. Until uh, this bonfire of enthusiasms occurred in the 1960s. All these people suddenly turned up, waving their signs, burning American flags, politicizing areas of American life that had never been politicized before. You know, feminists were, were uh, quote-unquote, politicizing the home and, you know, domestic relations. Race in America was becoming, quote-unquote, politicized. And I'll stop using the quotes because I'm obviously ventriloquizing someone else's narrative, but I think this is kind of the language that they would use. You know, student activists and hippies were doing all this, you know, radical social experimentation. There was a sexual revolution. You know, there were activist judges. Uh, you know, just insert every right-wing grievance imaginable into this story. You know, they're all present. All of this came out of nowhere this kind of cultural tide uh, that tried to undo all of the, and, and to a lot of conservatives succeeded in undoing a lot of the social bonds, the bonds of American community before the 1960s. This created a culture which was licentious, which was permissive, particularly when it came to sex and the family. It was becoming easier for people to get divorced or have casual sexual relationships, etc. And it's very difficult for me not to see this film, which came out in 1978, in that light. Uh, and in saying this, I don't mean that the film is consciously reflecting that or endorsing that narrative, but I think it's hard not to watch Halloween and see all of that present in the film. The major theme of John Carpenter's Halloween is people being punished for deviancy. The characters in the film are mostly uh, suburban teenagers who are not even doing anything political. I mean, they're just uh, living their lives as teenagers and doing the kinds of things that teenagers do. But the point is, they're disobeying authority, and they're acting outside of authority. I think the, the fact that Annie's father is a cop is very important to that, and the fact that the first time you think that Laurie has run into Michael Myers, she bumps into someone on the, the street, and it's kind of almost a jump-scare moment, but it's her friend's dad, the cop. Authority and kind of the pressure to conform to particular social expectations and the expectation that punishment will be meted out if you transgress. You know, I think those fears uh, and anxieties are very present in the film. And I think there's a reading of Michael Myers, who, as I said, is just kind of this spectral presence rather than a character, where he represents kind of traditional authority, paternal authority, law and order, small c conservative authority. And in this reading of the film, Laurie's survival can be read, at, you know, her ultimate survival can be read in a very obvious way, right? She's the chaste one. Uh, she's the one who performs, uh, you know, again, her quote unquote proper maternal function by looking after the children while her friends abdicate their responsibilities. I think there's a reading of this movie that sees it in some sense as a film about social decline and social decay along the essentially conservative lines I've described. You know, I think the fact that it is set in a kind of suburban community that's supposed to be a stand-in for the conservative idea of what America is and what real American culture looks like. The theme of this movie is, you know, first the social decay was, was off somewhere else, then it was by your school, then it was in your neighborhood, and then the social decay was coming from inside the house.
So I'm not saying that this is a Reaganite movie in a conscious way, but I do think it reflects, you know, the message that was carried in, you know, the original Ronald Reagan election, or at least one of the big messages. But I do think it reflects kind of one of the major narratives that carried Ronald Reagan into the presidency in 1980 when he ran on the slogan, let's make America great again. I mean, I think if the movie is scary, it's because this is happening in a white picket fence suburbia. And so I buy those reasons. I mean, those are the reasons why it's scary that it's happening in suburbia. Suburbia is supposed to be a safe and fundamentally conservative place. It's supposed to be a place where stuff like this doesn't intrude. I want to compare this to some later horror films, including some some films in the Halloween franchise. About 10 years ago, I saw the Friday the 13th remake. I think it came out in 2009. Not a very good movie, not a very interesting film. But something that I noticed about it was that the teenagers who died first were the ones who weren't having sex. I think the first two were kind of like incel type characters. Well, it was before the word incel had captured the public's imagination, but they they were loser characters and they died first. And in fact, there were a couple of sex scenes in the movie, and I don't think the characters died right after the sex scenes either. I found that interesting because it seemed that something had shifted in the culture. The audience for horror movies was no longer bothered by or no longer felt troubled by premarital sex. In fact, they felt that the alternative was a much scarier fate. And I would just say that I think the slasher genre itself, which is built on on these fears in particular, seems to have declined somewhat. There was a big boom after Scream in the 90s. But do you see a lot of slasher movies like this getting released theatrically nowadays? I I don't. No, not really. But on the theme of uh, subsequent horror movies and sequels or, you know, remakes of of the original Halloween, one I really wanted to bring up was the 2007 remake, the, the poorly received and for good reason 2007 remake of Halloween. By Mr. Rob Zombie. By Mr. Rob Zombie, uh, which actually has Malcolm McDowell as Dr. Loomis, or as the psychiatrist anyway. And this is a movie, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible because it is just a slight tweak of the original in terms of its its broad narrative strokes. And yet it is a film I am comfortable saying has a reactionary message that it, it wears on its sleeve. It's been a few years since I've seen it, but at the start of the film, you know, Michael Myers is just kind of like a kid in the neighborhood. I think sort of early on in the film, you see him get bullied, and hilariously, he's bullied by one of the kids from Spy Kids. What is that? Like, Junie, the brother from Spy Kids, uh, bullies Interesting. him. Interesting. Which is very <laughs> funny. And his mother is in the film, but she's kind of uh, portrayed in, in a super, you know, nasty and, and vile way as this kind of absent, you know, the film hates her. She's this absentee mother. She's a stripper, right? Or is she a sex worker? Yeah. Right. And why is she absentee? It's because she's sexually profligate. She's a stripper. There's a scene where he's like doing something, either committing murders or or, or something like that. And I seem to remember is kind of a, a montage sequence where he's committing violent acts and, you know, she's taking off her clothes at the strip club. So a very obvious reading, I mean, if there is a kind of conservative, you know, an actively and self-consciously conservative take on this story, it would be that. I mean, it's literally like we need to reassemble the traditional family because otherwise society will disintegrate. Well, in 2018, there was an addition to the Halloween franchise, a very successful sequel directed by David Gordon Green, also called Just Halloween, which erased all of the other sequels from the timeline. 
positioned itself as a direct sequel to the original and brought back Jamie Lee Curtis as Laurie Strode. And it went in the opposite direction in some ways from the Rob Zombie film, where once again, Michael Myers was was simply dehumanized evil, and the movie rejected or even laughed at any of the characters' attempts to analyze him. It's just, this is a bad man, get ready for battle. The scene that has stuck with me most from that film is, well, it's two scenes, actually. There's a moment, kind of a winking moment early on, where some kids are talking about Michael Myers, and one of them says, he had a pretty low body count by today's standards. So in that scene, the movie's obviously making a joke about horror movies, but I think it's also positioning Michael Myers in the reality of mass killings right now. And then that idea is picked up later in the film, where it's a sequence where he just goes from house to house. You follow him, I think even in one take, just going from one house after another, just killing people. Uh, doesn't matter who they are. They truly are random people, as Roger Ebert uh, warned us about. So the movie leaves behind the moralizing of the earlier films. People aren't being punished for having sex or doing drugs. It's much more like the famous mass killings of today, where it's like, wrong place at the wrong time, and you're dead. And I'm also not sure what to attribute the shift of Michael Myers back to inexplicable evil to. Um, I mean, I guess I could give a very obvious and superficial analysis that the discourse has evolved to where we think of our political opponents as enemies, you know, uh, be it Republican or Democrat or incel people or gamer gators or, you know, insert your boogeyman here. Some might say I'm either overanalyzing this or giving a very superficial analysis to it, and yet th there was a shift for whatever reason away from a movie that, that would psychoanalyze Michael Myers into one that would treat him as just abject evil again. running joke on the show that we're not very good at plugging uh, our content, particularly our paywalled content. And I don't know, maybe now it needs to be a running joke that I say it's a running joke that we're not very good at. I think we're actually pretty good at it at this point, frankly. <laughs> I, I feel like we forget because uh, I feel like there are a lot of people who listen to the free feed, particularly if they're discovering us through the Jacobin podcast feed, that may not know that we actually have extra episodes. I've seen a number of comments on the Patreon where people are speaking as if they've just discovered you know this extra trove of content so i did want to plug a few of kind of our recent additions we've had a a, a lot of bonus content uh recently because we don't just put up extra episodes in there there's one extra episode a week now up there but also there's other bonus content that doesn't even appear in our soundcloud feed or anywhere else in preview form so you know a few things we've done recently i guess there was a preview for this but uh, we talked about the new borat film that's on on our patreon uh you can hear a conversation uh, that I had with uh, Brianna Joy Gray and Nathan J. Robinson from Current Affairs about uh, the West Wing. We watched the uh, the West Wing reunion special, which I told Josh Olson and Dave Anthony of the uh, West Wing Thing podcast that I would not watch it unless you held a gun to my head. Um, embarrassed to say, I did watch it, uh, even though no gun was held to my head. So we talked about that. And uh, I also have a discussion uh, that we just put up 
of the recent election in British Columbia that I had with the uh, Canadian writer and uh, Washington Post columnist uh, David Mosscrop. So all that's up on our Patreon. Lots of goodies. If you like the free apps, you can find more stuff there. And kids everywhere will be getting some goodies this Saturday night as they <laughs> traverse from house to house. Uh, is Halloween actually happening this year? I see decorations in my neighborhood, but I don't know. I've been running a lot this week, and every neighborhood I run through run through has you know incredibly elaborate decorations. It's actually uh, it's actually quite nice. But I don't know if the actual business of Halloween is happening. I suppose it depends on kind of where you are. Like in Toronto, is like is it? You'd think going door to door would be the most unsafe potential super spreader event there would be. I guess we'll see. I imagine in a lot of places it will happen, and in some places it probably won't happen. That's my perspective. So I know you grew up in rural Ontario where presumably uh, houses were all a kilometer apart from each other because they they were all farms. But did you go trick-or-treating? Was Halloween big for you growing up? I did. There were several years where it was very important. The only costume I actually remember having, and I definitely wore it three or four years in a row, was his Darth Vader costume. There was something so cool about putting on like the Darth Vader helmet. It was a proper one. It wasn't one of those ones where it's just like the front of the mask and then you just like tie it around your face. It was a proper helmet. You know, and I had kind of the the, the cape and everything uh, and the lightsaber. It was all pretty good. I think my mom also made some additions to it. And yeah, you know, you couldn't trick or treat. You know, as you said, I grew up on a, t- a 25 acre farm. You couldn't trick or treat in on kind of the country concession roads. But I used to go into Embro, which was the town of, I mean, I want to say about a thousand people. It's probably bigger than that now. I mean, a town that was big enough to have, you know, several streets and a diner a general store and, you know, two variety stores, uh, you know, so you, you can imagine the kind of size of the town. An old fishing hole and a, and a country jail where you'd see Otis <laughs> locked up. <laughs> I don't think, I, I don't know if it, if it, if it even had a bar, you know, because I grew up, you know, rural going into Embro actually was kind of like a special treat for me. And I remember it feeling very like metropolitan. Like, I remember just walking down the streets and like going up to strangers houses and that being initially very scary and thinking, you know, wow, I'm in this like, I'm in this thing that kind of feels like a city when you when you grow up. And I'm sure there are people listening who grew up rural. And they'll know what I mean with this. But I mean, when you grow up in a in a very small community, and like when you grow up literally living in the country, um, and you don't spend a lot of time going into town or like for me, when we went into town, it was either Ember or Woodstock, which is bigger. You know, it was just to get groceries, you know, maybe to go to karate class, whatever. But, you know, I didn't like spend much time there. So, you know, the area kind of around my house and the roads I would drive through on the school bus, you know, that route I did literally thousands of times from senior kindergarten through to grade eight, where I was, I was at the same school for that entire time. I mean, it was such a small area. I looked at it a few years ago on Google Maps. Uh, I guess periodically I go down these kind of wistful rabbit holes where now because of Google Maps, you can, you know, I can look at my elementary school. I can like follow the Google Street View along my whole original bus route. And uh, that whole area, even some of the kind of uh, other towns like uh, Stratford and St. Mary's that were around there. I mean, it's all so close together. Like the area I grew up in, you know, you could bike around the circumference of it. If you drew a circle on a map, you could bike around the circumference in, I don't know, six or seven hours. 
and you could bike across it in much, you know, much shorter time and drive across it and even less. So just to go back to Halloween, I mean, part of the ritual of Halloween was uh, getting to look anonymous, which helped me deal with my fears of knocking on people's uh, doors because I was uh, Darth Vader, who was very scary and intimidating and getting to go into Embro, which uh, felt like, you know, big boy stuff. What was Halloween like for you growing up? Very normal suburban Halloween. It was great. I looked forward to it every year. Uh, I dressed up as Darth Vader once, but I dressed up as Batman three times. Actually, you know, my mom made me my first Batman costume. And I remember that, like, it took me a week to put it on because I was I was almost afraid of it. Uh, it wasn't actually being afraid of it, but I, I kind of felt like unworthy. Of you had such reverence for, like, the, the, yes. <laughs> the caped crusader. The institution <laughs> of Batman. The office of Batman. So we would do it like, well, what if we tried putting on the belt today? And then what if we tried putting on the glove today? You know, et cetera, et cetera. And if you, actually, if you look at the costume, it's like one of the most pitiful things. Like, <laughs> the ears don't even stand up. <laughs> I think that's a good place to end. Happy Halloween, everyone. We'll see you after the election. Working in the lab late one night When my eyes beheld an eerie sight For my monster from his slab began to rise And suddenly, to my surprise He did the match He did the monster match The monster match It was a graveyard smash He did the match It caught on in a flash He did the match He did the monster match from my laboratory in the castle east To the master bedroom at the vampire's feast The ghouls all came from their humble abode To get a jolt from my electrode They did the mash They did the monster mash The monster mash It was a graveyard smash They did the mash It caught on in a flash They did the mash they did the monster match. The zombies were having fun. The party had just begun. The guests included Wolfman, Dracula, and his son. The scene was rocking over digging the sound. Igor on chains backed by his baying hounds. The coffin bangers were about to arrive with their vocal groups.